Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stamore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part three and chapter six. Now, if you'd like to support the podcast and keep these books coming, it's $5 a month and the place to go is www.patreon.com forward slash the mariner and for everyone who's already gone over and offered their support thank you very much for that it really makes a big difference and makes it easy for me to contemplate putting many more of these books into recorded format like this now on with the story chapter six a piece of exploration when the mate and i went ashore at oban for letters he received a handful while i got none at all having previously boasted of the number i should find there i felt aggrieved Two in particular were important, some charts, and a new bird G had been ordered. We could, however, do without the flag, and we kept the dirty, ragged piece of bunting that still flew at the masthead. The lack of charts was different. I did not know what to do. Where shall I say we'll call for letters, said the mate. Well, hanged if I know. Where can we go if we have no charts? I don't suppose we can get one here. The only places I can think of are Glasgow and Liverpool. Or why not Belfast? I looked at the mate. He was spending a month's holiday on the Joan and was plainly anxious to make a record. But for me, the boat was my home, and I did not feel disposed at first to yield to the mate's desire for adventure. And Belfast sounded a little like adventure. It isn't so far, he suggested. It's not the distance, it's the trouble we might get into through being without a chart. Perhaps, though, we can get some sort of a map here, and I suppose a chart is not absolutely necessary. I heard of a man who once sailed from Cape Wrath to Land's End with no other aid in the likeliness of charts than a railway timetable. He certainly learnt a good deal of geography on the trip. Okay, well, say Belfast if you like. We may as well make a splash of a sort. I felt a considerable pleasure in merely writing home to tell them to send letters to Belfast. The other man was jubilant, but kept himself in hand. There was nothing much in the job, but we felt like a couple of Vikings anyway. We did manage to buy a chart which included the peninsula of Kintyre, and by its aid we reached Campbelltown, knowing all the time just where we were. There we discussed our plans for sailing to Belfast. I don't see there's much in it, said the mate. We know islands out there southwest somewhere, and I should think we'll find Belfast by the number of vessels going there. It's the only big port in the place. Well, very likely. Still, it may be tiresome sailing up and down the Irish coast to find the biggest stream of traffic. Well, couldn't we hail a boat and ask the way? Yes, but we're not going to. Suppose you were off South End and a passing boat asked you the way to London. You'd give him an ironical answer. That's what we get. Sure, I'm Bigora now, but you'll only need to keep sailing on. You can't miss Belfast. You'll tell it by the lively disposition of the people. I suppose you haven't seen a picture of Belfast so that you'd recognise the place when you see it. No, I know it's on Belfast Loch. Well, that's helpful. Let's collect a few facts. My nautical almanac gives a list of lights, buoys and bearings and distances. With a little trouble, we drew the diagram as in the illustration below. Our course from Sander Island is south, 27 west magnetic, 30 miles to Belfast Loch entrance. Sounds quite simple. I wonder what the Maiden's Light is on, the mainland or an outlying rock. Now that I see the names, I remember that Fairhead and Loch Larne were in Ireland when I went to school, but in what part of the country is the Copeland Island Light? 
and I see there's a Mew Island light in the same region. Any idea on how far into the country Belfast Loch goes? No, Ireland's only a small country, so it can't go far. And I don't know what the coast is like, flat or high, nor whether the water along the shore is shoal or deep. We'll learn more about Ireland on this trip than ever we knew before. We sailed from Campbelltown at noon on July 27th. The wind blew hard enough after our start to make the passage until midnight a boisterous one. After passing Sander Island, which is immediately south of the peninsula of Cantyre, we were able to lay our course, for which I felt as pleased as though I were grateful for an unexpected blessing. I hate trying to make a passage against the wind. It means so much labour and so little profit. The dinghy had to be bailed out three times before dark. This job was unpleasant and the mate said it looked dangerous from his lookout position in the well, where he had an excellent view of the dinghy tossing a few yards astern. I had to hold on to a seat with one hand while I threw out pailfuls of water with the other. It is really dangerous to do this in a rough sea when you are alone. You can jump into the dinghy and you can bail out, but to attempt to haul back to the boat from the dinghy itself would probably result in filling it. The man left aboard has to pull it alongside while the other sits in the stern. After dark, we made out two lights ahead. One was the maiden's. We were certain of that by its period. The other we took for black head without being sure of it. Our doubt was caused by the difficulty of timing the light from the deck of the Joan, for the waves occulted the light so frequently when it flashed that we were never quite sure whether the light was fixed or flashing or occulting. There was one of each kind to be seen on this part of the Irish coast. About an hour before midnight, one of the wire shrouds supporting the mast gave way, and an hour was spent in repairing it. To my surprise, black-haired light had disappeared. Soon afterwards, the maidens grew dim and disappeared too, and then I saw that they had been hidden by an approaching mist. As this came nearer, the wind died away until we were at last left to drift helplessly with the tide. Thick fog covered us closely until five o'clock when we made out a coast some three miles off, which we assumed to be island. Later in the morning, we saw what appeared to be a huge battleship. As the mist went and we drifted nearer, this was seen to be the Maidens, which we thus discovered to be some island rocks. We were between these and the mainland. All excitement over our little exploring trip was now gone, for the rest of the passage was obviously a straightforward sail. The coast was a line of rocky cliffs from which we concluded that there was deep water close in. We had only to follow this line of cliffs southward until Blackhead was reached. Our almanac said Lighthouse Red, which was better than having the name painted on the tower. For several hours we sailed along this bold coastline. Inland were great sloping hills turned into patchwork by the hedgerows which divided them into a thousand little fields. This panorama was foreign enough to our eyes to be Irish. One of the happiest recollections of the summer is of that morning's sail. A fine sun, a fine wind, a fine coast, an object achieved. What more could two healthy men want? Near the foot of the cliffs were many caves, and thirty feet above the water a narrow footpath had been made, which crossed the caves by little swinging plank bridges. It looked perilous, and we supposed it was a tourist trot, where Irish guides invented unbelievable stories of smugglers, giants and fairies. 
Nothing else happened on the journey except the sailing on to Belfast. The lock was so well buoyed that anybody could have found his way to the town. Once there, we went into the first opening that offered, took all the advice freely given us and tied against a dirty cosy wall in the corner of Spencer Basin. Nothing in it at all, said the mate. What's the good of wasting money on charts? Chapter 7. Our Gale Peatfield and I soon tired of Belfast. It was too big and business-like. We went there only because it seemed a convenient place to buy charts. The two we bought were poor, small-scale things which ten shillings worth of sailing directions helped to be useful. We bought some of the things we wanted on Monday morning and left in the afternoon. Half a dozen miles down the lock is a spot where some yachts are moored. There we stayed for the night, smothered with Irish rain instead of Scotch mist. I routed Peatfield out at 2am. He coolly asked if I wanted some help. What would you have said? Would you have allowed a strong crew member to remain in a comfortable bunk while you toiled with anchor and sails? He cursed me, and the Joan and Ireland, and the weather, and came on deck. There followed a fine day and a pleasant sail for 19 hours to Ramsey, one shower during the day and plenty of sun. The sailing directions said that the annual rainfall in the Isle of Man was 26 inches. We cheered aloud, hoping too that the Isle had already received the lot. Of course, it had not. So far as we could judge from the weather which followed, the Isle must have had many years of drought, and this year brought its average right again. Next day, the wind was hard southwest. Ramsey Bay was a perfectly sheltered anchorage. We left the boat to stretch our legs by climbing Snay Fell, which is a little over 2,000 feet vertically above our usual plane of living. Not a drop of rain fell on us throughout the day. Several heavy showers fell in other parts, but this time we did not object to them. The climb tired and stretched us thoroughly. On Thursday morning, the wind blew gently from the south-southwest. Ramsey Bay was still a good anchorage, but I watched the wind direction anxiously, for according to the book, when the wind blew in southeast, clear of the protecting shelter of Moorhold Head, Ramsey Bay is a very bad place. At 10am, it blew in southeast, freshening. Peatfield said that the barometer was falling. Then I thought it time to get away. We knew nothing of the harbour at Ramsey except that we should have to wait until 1pm for water in. The lee side of the island was only seven miles away round the point of air. We could get there in a couple of hours. Getting up the anchor was hard work. The chain as it came in had to be cleared of streaming yards of seaweed which, when they are flung off, blew straight into the mate's eye as he sat at the tiller. Near the point, the sea was very rough. All the tides meet there to play upon the shoals scattered around. Not shoals the Joan could ground upon, but the sort to make calm seas rough and rough seas wicked. The dinghy took in water quickly here. The mate informed me it wanted bailing. Round the point, the water was smooth, but the wind very violent. I bailed out the dinghy and cursed it. After we had gone seven or eight miles along the western shore of the island, thinking to reach Peel, the wind began to back. It was shifting back to southwest and made us think it was a race between us and the shifting of the wind. The dinghy was bailed out a second time. A few minutes later, it broke adrift. When the tow rope was pulled in, we saw that the pin of the shackle had unscrewed itself and disappeared. While we went back after the dinghy, one of the shrouds gave way, giving you the additional undesired job of lashing it down hurriedly. 
With some trouble, the dinghy was caught, and I lashed a stout warp to the front thwart as I leaned over it from the boat. By the time we were ready, the wind had drawn so far ahead of us to make it nearly a dead beat to peel. This could not be thought of with the dinghy in tow. We therefore determined to go back to Ramsey, which ought now again to give us a safe anchorage. On the way back to Airpoint, I noticed that along one stretch, the wind was blowing directly off the shore. This could only mean that it was on shore the other side where Ramsey lay. Was the wind shifting again or had I misjudged its direction? Plainly it was foolish to attempt to round the point, yet here was a safe anchorage for the present which it would be wise to stay in while the wind remained as it was. We should at least be able to eat and rest and consider what we ought to do. I am a firm believer in saving your strength when you see trouble ahead, especially on the water. Running as close inshore as we dared, we brought up. For five hours we remained there eating, bailing out the dinghy and arguing cyclones. The dinghy had to be kept on the lee side of the boat, for the wind was so strong it half filled with spray in a few minutes when left astern. At 7pm the wind had shifted so as to be blowing along the shore instead of from it. This made it necessary to go away. Hauling in that anchor was the hardest hour's work I have ever done. Only as the boat bounced between the snubs could the slack of the chain be rushed in. The wind was too heavy for any mainsail I could carry. We ran under the foresail towards air point, expecting to find shelter the other side. There may have been smoother water there, but we could not see it. The sea was bewildering. The dinghy filled and it was not possible to attempt bailing it out. I was faced with the choice of letting the dinghy go and trying to make Ramsey without it, or of riding out the gale using the dinghy as a sea anchor. We chose the second plan. Passing the end of a warp forward, we fastened it round the mast. During this operation, it tore out the bunch of cleats on the starboard side of the cabin top. Strenuous efforts were required from both of us to get the warp into the fair lead on the stem head. The boat then rode broadside onto wind and waves, occasionally pointing a little up into the wind. Having read that in these circumstances a mizzen is required, we took off the tears from ours and dropped the boom. You have never heard such a clatter. I hauled up the throat. In two seconds, the sail was in rags and streaming out like witch's hair. It took five minutes to tie up the spars again. The only other sail I could try was a storm jib. Using the topping lift as a halyard and shackling the tack of the jib to the main horse, we fastened the sheep forward in the well. When I hoisted it, it proved unworkable. The wind simply flattened it down on us, and after a few minutes struggling, the device was abandoned. There were no others we could think of except that of allowing the Joan to do exactly as she chose. Peatfield went into the cabin to light the lamp and make things tidy while I cleared up the tangle in the well. An hour's labour saw things as shipshape as we could get them. The boat was behaving grandly. Plenty of water came aboard, but none entered the cabin except through the chain pipe. We had well over twenty miles of sea room, and I did not see how the wind could last with such fury for many hours longer. We stayed in the cabin during the rest of the gale. Every half hour I put my head up to look around. Air, point, light and two others could be seen to windward of us for an hour or two. Then they disappeared. Nothing appeared to leeward. About midnight there was a twang and a thud, and I guessed the towing warp had parted and we had lost the dinghy after all. When daylight came, we found just enough rope left to reach the fair lead. For the rest of the time, the Joan had her own way unchecked. 
She still drove broadside on, shearing about a very few points as far as we could estimate from the compass I fixed up inside. I could see no difference in her behaviour from what it had been when she was on the dinghy sea anchor. Every minute or so a wave smashed on the weather bow and smothered everything. Just as frequently, a big splash in the cockpit seemed like a rush of water into it. Only once did a trickle find its way through the cabin doors. I bailed out with a saucepan during the night, emptying the water into the self-draining well. This work was irritating and provoked a deal of language, but though not necessary for life-saving purposes, it kept many things dry. Showing any lights or even keeping the riding light ready was not to be thought of. I suppose that if I had seen one was urgently required, I should have made an attempt to get it lit, but not before. Peatfield was lucky enough to possess the downhill bunk and could have lain there in comfort and slept, but I do not think he did this. I kept having five-minute dozes in a semi-reclining posture. Between these, I looked out or fed myself or smoked. At 7am, I cooked some coffee and porridge. I meant having something hot, and I was also determined to show what could be done by a desperate mariner. And the cooking and balancing were done so efficiently that only one quarter of the porridge was lost on the cushions, and only one half of the coffee, not the hot liquid but the dry powder. I had no idea how expansive is a quarter pound of dry coffee. We swept and pumped coffee for days after. The most difficult part of the business was swallowing it. You held on to some support with one hand while you waved the mug to your lips with the other. Just as you opened your mouth, the coffee, being a liquid, found its own level which was never yours. As soon as you decided to wait for another chance, back it rushed, filling your mouth and running down your chin. But it was worth all the trouble. Until 9am on Friday, the wind howled its worst. At 10am, we set a fully reefed main and began a weary beat back. The wind very gradually died away from that time, but it left a bad sea until the early evening. Finally, we shook out the reefs and crawled back to Ramsey, anchoring in the bay at midnight. Our sails were hardly stowed when some fishermen came alongside. Is this the yacht that went out from here yesterday morning? When they were sure it was, they said, Where did you get to last night? Uh, off the point of air? But where did you go in the night? Off the point of air? Well, we never expected to see you come back alive. You're lucky to get through it all, and we're very glad to see you back. Next morning, we had to hold a reception, for boat after boat came out to take note. We went into the harbour in the afternoon, and of course, were photographed and congratulated. Petefield said that during the night, he had decided to give up yachting, but he went back on his decision next day and wanted to repeat the performance. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.